our people, it's, I think it's very crucial for them to know what their rights are. Once they know what their rights are, they will fight for it. They don't know what their rights are. They, they don't speak out. They're scared. They're afraid. They don't go out at all. Uh, they just go to work and they come home and they are stuck with their friends. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be or how do you negotiate that. The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research and struggle. Hello everyone, today my guest is Imran Mohamed, who is a Rohingyan writer here in Chicago where we are recording this conversation and a former uh, a past contributor uh, to The Phenomenalist uh, in number number 14 that he, he had published a piece in the fall of 2017. Um, hello Imran. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. So. It's going to be a little bit different from the sort of conversations we're having on the podcast because uh, usually it's very like um, uh, like asking specific questions about some topics and everything. In that case, it's it will it will be more about uh, what has been what have been those last six years for you or seven years um, when you when you wrote uh, the piece for the phenomenalist you were uh, at the four, in the fourth year of detention on Manis Island um, in uh, in uh, Papua New Guinea New Guinea uh, in a detention center that uh, the Australian government have been um, have been building uh, to um, uh, to keep people away from from the continent uh, uh, from the the settler colony that uh, Australia is. And so there's always something a little bit strange in asking people, okay, so tell us your story and, and this kind of thing. But I think we're, uh, you also think that telling this story is a way to bear witness to what happened and you, you, and you feel that it's an, important, it's an important way to talk about people, about the conditions in Myanmar, in Australia, and um, and uh, what you've been experiencing is is being experienced by many many other people. So I think that's that's the way maybe to tell the listeners that's a little bit the way we we thought of this conversation. So thank you very much for doing it. And um, could we perhaps could I perhaps ask you to start uh, with telling us um, as you did in the piece for the Phenomenalist two years ago. Um, what I mean, many people are aware of the of the genocide that is currently ongoing in Myanmar against Rohingya people. But 
perhaps not everyone. So could you could you maybe tell us about it? My name is Imran Muhammad, and uh, I'm a Rohingya refugee. So what it means to be a Rohingya? So in our country, you know, we are persecuted, and uh, we have been persecuted for decades. Uh, there are many of us uh, who don't even know what persecution means. Uh, because in our country, we are, our actions are restricted, our movements are restricted. We are not allowed to go to school. We are, it's basically because our government don't want us to be educated. Because once we get an education, we will know what our rights are. We will fight for our rights. That's why they are restricting our lives. So I was very young uh, when I left my country. And uh, I have been to Bangladesh, I have been to uh, Malaysia, and uh, when I was there, I was not allowed to do anything. That's why I left uh, uh, Malaysia in 2012, and then I went to Indonesia. I was detained there for nearly two years because I didn't have uh, any identification uh, because I was persecuted by our government. and. Uh, I didn't have any birth certificate, I, I had nothing, so they put me in detention center. Uh, it was a bit different because it was funded by the Indonesian government. So it, it was like a detention center, but in some other ways it was not. Um, I was there for nearly two years. I did not have any communication to anybody for, for the two years. Uh, but I was interviewed by the UNHCR. And then I got my refugee status, and then I was released. And then uh, I was not allowed to do anything in Indonesia either. I was only allowed to uh, be there until I got uh, I was resettled by a third country. And I saw there uh, I saw refugees who were living there for nearly seven, ten years. They were just waiting, and they. We are not allowed to get an education, they are not allowed to leave the city. And uh, I just couldn't do it I, because I wanted to get an education. I wanted to have a voice for myself and for other people. So I um, left Indonesia and I went to Australia. I tried to go to Australia again. I thought I would be respected as a human being if I went to Australia. So I did go to Australia in 2013 and then the Australian government, government moved me to their offshore camp in Papua New Guinea uh, and it was on Manus Island and I was there from 2013 to 2018 for nearly five years. Um, there are so many things to talk about uh, their uh, detention center. Uh, in Papua New Guinea. I mean, it, I just did not understand why they are moving refugee from Australia to, uh, to their offshore camps. Um, I mean, you know, they spend billions of dollars in those countries. So Australia is a rich country and they are playing with these uh, uh, poor countries because they don't have enough money and they need the money and, and they don't care what the Australian government is doing in their country. Uh, we, we were tortured mentally, emotionally for the last five years. 
and there are still hundreds of refugees who are still stuck there and they don't know anything about their future. They are, I mean, they are just lost. They don't have any hope. You had a, um, yeah, on Manus Island, you had a very strong sense of community, I believe, with uh, the other people who've been, uh, who, who, have, who are incarcerated there. And, um, and you, you even together organized some movements of protest, didn't you? Yeah, when uh, we were there, uh, when I was moved to Papua New Guinea, I could not speak English. I didn't have any language. Um, and I struggled on a daily basis because, you know, I could not express myself and we didn't have any communication with the rest of the world. So there were many refugees from around the world. I think there were nearly 19 different nationalities on that island. And we became like a family. We started working together. So we started uh, improving our English. We started writing. And uh, we started pro protesting for our rights in a peaceful way. And there was no violence at all. We uh, started pro protesting every single day during after, after lunch. And uh, we wanted the world to know what was happening there. And um, I was very lucky because uh, the United States accepted my refugee case in 2017 and, and uh, I came to this country in 2018. But uh, there, are many of, there are many refugees who are still there. Mm. And, and be, before that, I remember receiving a receiving an email from you uh, that was very alarming because uh, the Australian government also shut down the camp and left left you all defense defenseless and so you had to organize this space that was like a very much a prison you had to organize it as a way to be able to continue to live there for a little while didn't you yeah so in 2016 the supreme court of papua new guinea found the detention center was illegal and during that time, the Australian government had to make a deal uh, to remove all the refugees. And they were, they were also told to close the center uh, in Lombrum. So, you know, we were there for a long time and, you know, they lied again and again. So we lost faith in humanity. We did not trust their word. Uh, because you know it's, uh, they lied to us for years, so uh, you know it's, they were telling us that they would close the center, and we asked them, then what's next? We want a solution in our life, uh, a permanent solution. We don't want to move from one detention center to another. Uh, the center is illegal here, so if you want. To close this center, we want a future, a permanent solution to our lives. So in 2017, they closed the center and they left us with nothing in 2017. And, and we were there for a month with nothing, no food, no electricity, no work, uh, no security at all. And there were so many sick people. It was just a disaster, and uh, I don't think anyone will ever forget this tragedy.
And so after that, you were you moved to another another facility in uh, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, yeah, it was still on Manus Island, and we were forcibly moved to another center, uh, and they built another. They built three centers, so they there are two centers where they kept refugees, and there there was another center where they kept the asylum seekers. So they separated us. Um, so it was kind of a, it was another form of torture because you know we became like a family, and then all of a sudden you know they were making all these changes. They separated us because you know we lost our family members back home. We we were there for more than four years and we became like a family, we were like brothers and then we were separated again. And we were not allowed to visit them either. So the center were closed and they didn't let us uh, see each other. So we had to leave the center to see each other somewhere else. Are you are you still in contact with uh, many people? I keep in touch with my brothers yeah. uh, on a daily basis. It's uh, tough, but I think it's important because when I was there, I knew how important it was to have uh, communication with someone who mm. was not there. So it's like you know, it's very important to know that you know there is someone out there who think who thinks about us. So that's why I'm I'm very lucky to be here in this country, and I'm free, and uh, I have the voice to share their message. Uh, so I think it's my duty to keep in touch with them, just to give them hope, so that they can survive on a daily basis. Mm. This is where solidarity starts, right? It's like it's uh, I mean, we. Like those of us who have like passports and all all those kind of things, like we we can do much more than that. But the very least is like showing signs of that we we're your people are in our heart and people are in our thoughts. And it's yeah, I think that's the message that we're trying to explain. I mean, you know, that's I'm talking about uh, my brothers who are stuck in Papua New Guinea, who are stuck in Nauru. And also, you know, uh, our people, Rohingya people are stuck in Bangladesh camps, you know, uh, I try to communicate with them too, because, you know, it's, uh, they're very vulnerable. I mean, they do, our language is not written, so they don't have any written words. So we just, uh, our culture is very delicate because, you know, it's, uh, we can't write. So uh, we just communicate verbally. Um, it's uh, it's dying almost, but we are trying our best to keep our culture alive. Mm. So there are so many things. <laughs> mm. are, were you able to were you able to recreate some sense of community here in Chicago? Maybe with other Rohingyans, but also maybe probably other other people too. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, uh, I have met many refugees from many countries here. Uh, I go to Truman uh, to take my classes and there are so many refugees and it's one of the wonderful things that I have experienced, the diversity. Uh, it's, it's just incredible to see people from around the world in just one place. And also we have a community center in, in Chicago uh, on Divan 
and there are nearly 400 Rohingyas who are living in Chicago now. So it's not a big community, but it's getting uh, bigger slowly. And uh, our culture is very, very new to this country. It's a brand new world for our community. So, and also, you know, we didn't have education when we were home. So man, there are so many things that uh, we need to learn. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very tough country to be for, especially for our people. Uh, like yeah, last night, you know, that uh, you were talking about the communities and societies, how they are divided and why they are divided. Uh, it was very interesting because, you know, our people are just stuck in their community because they are not mingling with it. They don't have the language and uh, they don't understand the system. They don't understand the culture. So uh, they, they have been here for years. Some of them have been here for six, seven years. They still don't speak the language. Mm -hmm. And it's so uh, fascinating. They were in other countries. They picked up uh, other languages very quickly, but they are here and they are struggling still. Um, but I'm trying to help our community too. And what, what you were just referring uh, was uh, Phenobilist events that happened uh, yesterday, I mean, yesterday when we were recording this conversation, um, where we had five Chicago activists who were, who were in the Phenobilist by its readers book. And, um, and um, in the context of Chicago, I think it was very strongly um, stated that there is uh, also a structural uh, will to have the city segregated. I mean, the north from the south, the west from the north, and the west from the south. Like the uh, communities that comes together are uh, somehow politically dangerous to uh, um, you know the white and wealthy communities in the city. So I, th I think what was wonderful about yesterday's event was like to have some of those. Uh, some of those representative of communities that could meet, even though we met in a very sort of central, central area. Um, but so, yeah, I'm thinking that. Uh, I mean, I'm. Thank you so much for coming yesterday to to this, and I I, I would love for it to be like a, an opportunity, for example, to have a, to have a, the kind of communities that you managed to recreate here and then uh, sort of Chicago locals who are fighting for their rights as well for uh, sometimes centuries. I mean, when we talk of African-American communities in particular, um, do you do you sense? I mean, you've been you've been here for a very short amount of time, but do you feel that it is important for you to create such links as well? I think it's very important because, you know, as I was talking about our people being um, for our people, it's, I think it's very crucial for them to know what their rights are. Once they know what their rights are, they will fight for it. If, because we, and they don't know what their rights are, they, they don't speak out. They're scared, they're afraid, they don't go out at all. Uh, they just go to work and they come home and they are stuck with their friends. No, there is a world out there and once you are here, you have your rights and you can fight for it, you can, uh, you know, you can talk about it, no one will say anything about it. I mean, it's very, very important for so the activists who were there uh, last night, uh, in the event. you know, 
they're fighting for their rights because you know they're educated there. They, they know what their rights are and they are helping their communities to improve their lives and they are telling them okay you are here you, you know you, uh, you are part of this country you have these rights you can talk about these uh, issues it's your right so they are helping their communities and they are helping them in many different ways so i think it's for our community it's very important to know all these things they need to know the system they need to know the culture they need to know the country because they are here they are not in burma anymore if, you know it's, they it's the only way they can improve their communities their, their societies and their uh, their new generation their future generations it's if we, if we don't try to improve our lives then, and if we don't get an education if we don't get involved in these issues we will not improve mm. And of course, there's many types of education because yeah, uh, yes, yesterday Patricia Nui and was one of the five uh, guests to see her, uh, 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 wanted to showcase how her dad, who was in the in the in the crowd in the audience, who is a Vietnamese refugee person, uh, um, um, was was pretty much one one of the very strong reasons she's doing what she's doing today. So as there's also a, uh, an education that comes from uh, just talking between generation, talking between communities, that is uh, that is such a strong a strong thing as well. Yeah, it's, it's very strong because we are all different. We experience different things in our lives and our stories are different and we need to share our stories because everyone has something to say mm. and everyone's story is different. and. Uh, People learn different things from different people. Uh, so we are, you know, we are Rohingyans, but you know, we, we have experienced different things in our lives. Uh, we were in different camps, you know. It's, uh, uh, we can talk about all these things, and we have to share our st stories within our community. And like, you know, it's uh, for the new generations. There are many children, you know. It's, they need to know. Uh, what is out there? What can I do in the future? So it's, when I started taking classes here, I didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, I, because I did not have any idea about the education system. There's so many things that I can study, but I don't know all these things. So I'm trying my best to improve my lives, and uh, at the same time, trying to learn all these different things. And then I can decide, okay, uh, this is what I should do. Or if I want to do something else in the future, I can do that too. So I have options. So for the new generation, it's very important uh, for them to know what they can do. They need to learn about these things. And we have to help them to know that, you know, there are so many things that they can do. So it's, uh, we have so many work to we don't. Mm -hmm. Perhaps as a last question, uh, since uh, you know I'm always uh, obsessed with the idea of space, and we're in different places in the cities and everything. Where where does the Rohingyan community in Chicago uh, feel the most at home in Chicago? So they are mostly living on the north side of Chicago. Uh, I think uh, because there are many immigrants who are 
around that area and I think it makes them feel uh, comfortable and I think they feel that uh, they are in their comfort zone. They are very, we are very new to this country and I don't think many uh, of us have the uh, confidence to live outside of our community. So I think it's just the beginning for our people in this country and uh, people are trying. It's not that people are not trying. We are trying our best and uh, some of us have the voice to speak for our community and I think uh, we should talk about our community and uh, uh, get engaged in many other community uh, services with other people who are uh, working for their communities and I think that's how we can improve our community in Chicago or around the country. Well, thank you so much, Imran, and uh, I think we can we can uh, uh, finish by also uh, telling people who are still in Manus and and other you know, other, in other parts of uh, of the world where you have uh, comrades and brothers, and uh, that uh, we we strongly think about them, and uh, and uh, hopefully some of them will be able to to listen to you so, uh, speaking from. Uh, from this new home you have now in Chicago. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I think it's very important for our brothers to know that uh, I'm here and I have not forgotten them. And also my Rohingya community. Uh, it's a very tough time for our people at the moment because you know our leader is uh, uh, working against our people. I mean, it's a shame because you know she, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, she is our prime minister. And she's our first elected prime minister, mm. and she was in prison for a long time. She struggled in her life, and she fought for human rights. But now, you know, it's very surprising, and in some ways, it's shocking because you know she's speaking against her own people. Uh, because you know we have been persecuted for decades, and she knows that we are part of Burma, and we will, we we don't have citizenship, but. We are from Burma. We are Rohingya. We don't have any other country to go. That's our country. And uh, it's a shame that she's speaking against us. Um, but I hope you know justice will be served for our people. I know it will take a long time, but uh, I'm not uh, giving, giving up my hope. Mm -hmm. And also for our brothers who are uh, stuck on Manus and Nauru and also around the country. And in my life, I will continue to fight for refugees and asylum seekers because uh, it's very important for me. Thank you, Imran. This podcast is produced by The Funambulist. You can listen to dozens of other episodes on your favorite podcast platforms and on our website at thefunambulist.net.